Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 148 for June 12, 2008. Listener feedback number 43. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, the wizard of security from his lair in beautiful Irvine, California, where it must be about 100 degrees once you get above ground out of the fortress of solitude, right? It was drizzling this morning, actually. We're, we've been having a really weird, like, I don't know if summer's ever going to get here. I got a piece of uh, solicitation in the regular paper mail yesterday from some air conditioning company that had overpurchased air conditioners. That was their come on anyway. <laughs> we bought and, too many. <laughs> and they were, yeah, we thought we were going to be installing air conditioners in 08 summer, but we're not. So we're going to give oh, you $1,000 off. It's like, oh, OK, well, that's kind of believable. And they said they had 11. They had, a, a, they had 11 too many. Exactly like, well, 11. Well, okay. send them send them my way. I can use an air conditioner. It's so hot it's, uh, up here. It's, not down it's gonna here. be in the nineties, believe it or not. Beautiful day up so in Petaluma. It is. It's a beautiful day, except that I uh I'm inside. So let's talk a little bit about uh, our listener questions and answers. We're gonna do episode number forty three feedback. We've got some great questions from people all over the country. Yeah, we got a neat variety today. Some are long, some are short. It probably balances out to about what's usual. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of good stuff in my mailbag. Uh, people went to grc.com slash feedback and, uh, and sent us stuff. And as I always want to encourage people to do, I, I read as much as I can. Including our looming threat observation of the week. <laughs> yep. But first, before we uh, do any of that, let's get an update on, uh, on the news, uh, security news. Uh, around the world I, some 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 interesting things um in security first of all we're recording this on um the the monthly tuesday the second tuesday patch of the tuesday. month patch tuesday of, of microsoft's patch tuesday so unfortunately the the update details are not available i do know because they now release a week ahead of time they tell us a sort of a broad stroke what's coming um, there are three critical updates, and I'm most interested in one which involves Bluetooth, because, of course, being radio and with many Bluetooth um, adapters on laptops, uh, that's of a concern. So, um, well, not only laptops, but, you know, portable uh, Windows devices of various sorts. So there's three cl- critical updates, Bluetooth and IE and DirectX. On the other hand, when wasn't there a critical update for IE? So and even DirectX has been having lots of problems. The good news is the the BSA, the MBSA, the Microsoft 
baseline security analyzer that we talked about last week will inform any of our listeners whether their updates are needed. All three will require rebooting your system, so it's something that you may want to plan for. By the time you hear this, it'll, of course, be Thursday, and this will be two days ago for you. So the the information will be there. Windows Update will probably know, but uh, specifically because there is a radio-based critical remote code execution problem somewhere. I don't know as we're recording this where, but uh, it does sound like something that our listeners are going to want to make sure they get patched. All right. Run your patch system if you haven't already. And I turn mine automatic patches on. Do you do that? I'm just curious. No, I don't. I, I've got mine set to to download and hold. So download and ask me. For example, I don't want SP3. SP3, Service Pack 3 for XP, is, has caused me two separate sets of problems, um, and my tech support guy too, Greg, and uh, and by removing them in both in all those cases, the problems went away. So I've confirmed that it was SP3 that did it to me. It's like, I'm not in a hurry to, to go there. Although Microsoft, you know, every time I check, they're saying, hey, you don't have SP3. It'll be good for you. It's like, uh, no, I don't think so. I installed it on one machine, and it, uh, it was actually smart enough to back out. It said, oh, the problem, and it backed out very nicely. Uh, yeah. And then I put it on a – now, I had it on a, a XP Service Pack 2 on a virtual machine on my Mac, and and uh, it installed just fine flawlessly, and then I mean, it immediately laid, made a save point in VMware saying, you know, we like, might want to go back to this point. So um, Well, that, that and, and fine. it's certainly the case that not everyone is having problems. These things seem to be very anecdotal. Right. But, you know, I had this – as I said a couple of weeks ago, my the items in my start menu stopped responding to the mouse. And it's like, That's okay, yeah. going going into Windows Explorer and double-clicking on the XE is really not very user-friendly. So I decided ah, I don't need Service Pack 3 for, for the moment. Um, another – very important um, problem for Skype users um, is an interesting one. Apparently, it's only Windows versions of Skype, although I didn't see that ex- explicitly reported. Although I, I say that because the Mac version of Skype I've got is down at 2.7 point something. Yeah, yeah it's way behind, isn't it? And so, th- so this is relative to versions, any Windows version prior to 3.8.0.139. There has been a vulnerability discovered which allows some Skype user to send another Skype user a a link which is executable, but it bypasses Skype's executable verification, which would normally warn you before you were going to click on an executable. So this would allow someone to send you a link masquerading as something else, causing you to run the program on your machine. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's as long as you're not using Skype or if you only Skype to people you really know and trust, it's probably not a big problem, but it is something that has, has you know, come to the security community's attention and it's been fixed. So, you know, as long as you're at 0.139 and later, 3.8.0.139, you're going to be okay. All right. Good to know. Now, the last thing is really interesting. Um, it's... Probably by now, people have heard Microsoft saying not to use Windows Safari. Yes. 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 And, and the reason for this is just freaky. Um, okay, so there's a problem, a known problem with Safari on Windows. Apple knows about it, and their initial reactions were, that's eh. not our problem. Eh. 
Um, okay, so what Safari does, Safari has always, both on the Mac and this behavior moved over, it's, well, it stayed with Safari when it was ported over to Windows, and that is it will allow web pages to, inst- to download programs without user involvement or confirmation. So, I mean, to me, that doesn't seem very secure. But, but it doesn't execute them. It just downloads them. That's what I'm saying. It yeah. will. So that that means you could go to a web page, and that web page could, without your user involvement, download a file to your machine. Okay. Now that seems like a bad idea, but you know that's the way Safari has always been. Okay. The default directory for downloading on Windows versions of Safari is the user's desktop. So the first thing that happened was someone realized that um, uh, a security researcher called it carpet bombing. You could go to a malicious website. A Windows Safari user could go to a malicious website that would carpet bomb, to use his term, your desktop with files. And, you know, just which is certainly annoying. Okay. Then it turns out that a a sort of a mistake in the design of Windows interacts with this. Uh, th- therefore, in, in a security standpoint or, or from in security jargon, we call it a blended threat because Safari by itself can just download the file without user involvement but won't execute it. Unfortunately, Windows will. So what happens is that when Internet Explorer runs – it loads a number of DLLs into itself, which it finds on the system mm-hmm. in various places. Now, the problem is, and this is an old security problem with Windows from years ago, which was known as the DLL search order. That is the order of subdirectories in which DLL, uh, the subdirectories that would be searched when DLLs are loaded. There are three DLLs, sqmappy.dll, image res.dll is image resources, and schannel is a secure channel.dll file. Well, it turns out that if you don't have Windows updated with the so-called secure DLL search order, and it wasn't until Service Pack 2 that this was set by default to be on. And it's not clear to me if you if you upgraded to Service Pack 2, whether it would turn it on. That is, remember, there are many things that, that, went, that Microsoft left alone when you went to Service Pack 2. For example, if the firewall was off, it wouldn't turn it on. But if you installed from scratch the Windows with Service Pack 2, then it was turned on. So there were a number of things like that. So the problem is you could use Safari to – a Windows user using Safari goes to a bad site which puts, for example, schannel.dll on your desktop. Mm Mm-hmm. And you don't notice that it's arrived. For example, many people have cluttered desktops. So one more little icon is like, oh, well, I'll get around to cleaning this up later. Then you later run Internet Explorer. Well, it turns out that the non-secure DLL search path includes the 
the the path where it's first the, the the first place the DLLs are searched for is the directory that the program itself is loaded from. Right. So it would, it would look in IE's own directory where the IE executable is. However, the, these things live in the System32 directory. That is, these various DLLs do. So if it's not found there, it goes through a series of directories. The second directory, which is checked, is the directory from which the app was launched. Well, most people launch IE from their desktop. So the oh, second, that's interesting. So it so, would look on the desktop. Yes, and it would find the S-channel DLL, which was deposited there by someone using Safari. Is that why Apple says it's not our fault, it's Windows' fault? Is that because it shouldn't yeah. be doing that? It shouldn't have the desktop in the path or, or whatever? It's very creepy. I mean, the, the, yes, this this... The DLL search order problem again. It was it was something that that is you know Windows has always done it. At some point, someone said, "Hey, you know Microsoft, not this is not, this is not a good idea." And so they said, "Ah, oh, you're right." But uh, they were worried, as they always do, and, and I'm you know we understand this that if they change something fundamental to the system, like the order in which DLLs were loaded. Lord knows what side effects that might have. So but, they. But I have to say, Apple's that it, it's that's passing the buck because this is not good behavior, regardless of that. Correct. So the the workaround, you know, Microsoft gently says we sort of recommend maybe that you not use Safari. <laughs> oh, there's. I think this is a little sniping. Don't you think? Well, you know, and I was curious because the various news reports were like in bold print. Microsoft. Apple, no. But yeah, yeah, yes, right. Microsoft warning people not right. to use Safari. Right. Okay, so I looked at the actual jargon on you know the actual verbiage. On Microsoft's site, and it's very gentle. It doesn't it, say don't use Safari. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, well, it's gently says that. Um, the all you have to do if you're a Safari user on Windows is have your files go somewhere else. Create, you know, on the root, for example, sr, you know, Safari download, or or put it wherever you want to under my documents or something, and then change the default in Safari so that that's where files are downloaded by default. And then if anybody you know, if you go to a malicious site, it'll just go into that directory, which will never be searched for for DLLs. Right. So so it is the case. This is a little bit of a, you know, it's blended. And so is the responsibility. You know, I don't like the idea of a browser not not prompting me to verify that it wants, you know, that, that I want it to download a file. I'm glad that that has been added um, in IE seven, very clearly, where you know, I mean, you're really prevented for that. But at, at the same time, you you could say, okay, Windows, that's just you know, that's bogus that you're going to run, you well, know, run files that I might have on my desktop. It shouldn't do that, and Safari shouldn't be doing what it's doing. And you know, one of the researchers said you can use this for a quote carpet bomb attack, which is not a you know, not a uh, security risk, just really, really annoying. You can go to a web page that just loads up a ton of files onto your desktop. You know, yep. hundreds and hundreds of files on your desktop. You know, that's just annoying. But it's. But I think that's a clear flaw. Yeah, I agree. They should fix that. Yeah, I think uh, you know it ought to be. It ought. Well, I would like to see. I would like to see Safari changed so that you. Yes. You know that, that you have to. You have to give it permission before loading a file on your computer. This is. You know, Safari has been a problem on the Mac side as well because uh, it, it it would open files uh, that it considered non-dangerous files, and so somebody showed how you could. Uh, it, 
you, this could this could also cause a security flaw. And they change that behavior. I think it's just a matter of time before they fix Safari on, on Windows. Yeah, well, as a consequence of Apple not having been in the crosshairs of hackers as long as Microsoft has been, right. there, there are, you know, there, there's some stuff. Well, yeah, they're they're not they don't have the 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 maturity of understanding that <laughs> that <The> paranoia any, <laughs> that anything that can be done will be right, done. Right, right. Yep. Some would say that's paranoia, not maturity of understanding. But it's but it's exactly the right uh, point of view. Um, they they uh, I, you know with the I now that the new iPhone is out, I think that this maybe makes us understand a little bit better why Apple was so anxious to get Safari on Windows because. The new iPhone has enterprise grade kind of syncing for Windows as well, and there's and it looks like there's features that you're going to want to use Safari for. So, then I think Microsoft probably also resented a little bit Apple's pressure on Windows users to install Safari. Remember with that update, you got to update Safari even if you didn't even have it. Yeah, so. well, and and you know there were, as I understand it, there was like you know they're they're trying to get you to load more of their Windows right. stuff right. ever you do anything. Um, while we're t- one last comment about the iPhone and the iPod Touch, both I wanted to mention to any of our, um, I don't know if I want to call them fat fingered listeners, um, but uh, Think Geek just came out with a stylus. That works on the iPod Touch really? and the iPhone because now that's you, a capacitance screen, so you need to use your normally you need to use a live human finger to do it. exactly the for example the the palms use a a film a film screen that is a resistive technology, so you can tap it with your you know your fingernail or the stylus or whatever you want. The iPods are a capacitive technology, so you can't use for example the eraser end of a pencil; it won't work. And recognizing this, uh, some enterprising company came up with a stylus that does work, and uh, so it solves the problem of typing on the keyboard, which is, you know, my main gripe with with those is that the keyboard's just unusable, elegant as the result is. It's, you know, it's like, okay, I want I want my little two thumb keyboard, please, <laughs> like the you know, like like the trio and the BlackBerry right. have. Well, that's and that's really that was the font, that was really the reason I use a BlackBerry, not the uh, iPhone. It's the keyboard. Yeah, it's impossible. Very simple. Uh, Any other um, tech news? I have one interesting, uh, well, an an interesting Spinrite report. This is not a testimonial. Uh, And what what the reason I chose it was that he asks a question at the end, which I think our listeners will find really interesting and uh, which I remember believe I remember feeling was really interesting when I first heard it. Uh, This is Philip. Lee Rich, um, he said the subject is Spinrite fails again. And it's like, uh, okay. And he says, hi, Steve. Spinrite failure stories seem to be the flavor of the month recently. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I don't know if that's such a good trend, but, you know, <laughs> that, that, that is the case. I've been, we've been having some fun with, you know, the Spinrite didn't work for me stories, although typically it's not Spinrite's fault. Well, and he says, there's and, a good reason. There's always a happy ending, I might point out. And he says, and now it's Spinrite floppy tails. He says, well, here's one that combines the two. I'm one of those people Leo can't understand who still uses floppies. I can't understand that. I just don't In get fact, it. In fact, because I need them for data transfer between two systems for which USB memory sticks are prohibited by policy. Oh, interesting. However, 
What a silly policy if they still allow floppies. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, he even anticipates you saying that at the end of his note. <laughs> okay. He says, a few weeks ago, I popped a floppy into my trusty old USB floppy drive yes. and got the dreaded, this diskette does not appear to be formatted. Would you like to format it now? Message. Another floppy gave the same result. However, only a month or two previously, I'd finally caved in after some 60 episodes of Security Now and bought my own copy of Spinrite. Yay. So I was glad for the chance to try it out when in need. Mm-hmm. I, I hibernated my PC, booted into Spinrite, and set it to work on the floppy. But I was disappointed. Almost immediately, Spinrite came up with a message the precise wording of which I have since forgotten. But the sense of it was that my floppy was not just dead, but as good as fossilized. (laughs) Well, that's why I don't like floppies, because that happens a lot. Well, Spinrite is normally effective in this case, but we'll find out why it didn't work here. He says, rarely do I miss a chance of taking something apart. So I got out my screwdrivers (laughs) and opened up the floppy drive. The problem was immediately apparent. One of the heads had fallen off its carrier and was just dangling by its leads. <laughs> okay, now I understand. <laughs> he, says, he says, expecting Spinrite to cope with that That's a little would, much. <laughs> would indeed be a bit much. He says, it looked relatively easy to remove the carrier, super glue the head back on, and put it back together again, pro- pro- provided... There was some kind of detent to ensure correct head alignment. Unfortunately, there wasn't. Yeah. With the result. Because floppy spin- drives cost four dollars. I'm sorry. With the result. Yes. That Spinrite still reported my drive as fossilized. Yes. So I had to time. order a new one. I'm left with one question. Yes. And here's his question. Yes. <laughs> with CD drive speeds. Now at around 52x, uh-huh. how is it that it's taken 20 years for me to find even a double-speed floppy drive like this well, smart new one of mine? Yeah, that's a good question. Then he says, thank you for Spinrite and for Security Now. Never before, never before I started listening, had cutting the lawn been such a pleasurable experience. <laughs> And then oh, he signs man. he signs off best regards Philip PS I can almost hear Leo asking what's the point of a policy that disallows USB memory sticks he knows me per- too well <laughs> but but permits USB floppies yes and he says well at least with a floppy disk containing sensitive data if you want to dispose of it you can open it up and right. drop the floppy the, the floppy bit in a shredder right and not many usb sticks have a read-only yeah, sure. reset switch so you can be quite sure no sensitive data leaks when you import from a less trusted system i should point out and he even kind of raised this issue that on uh, most uh, cd roms now are you know 20 times faster than floppies you just have a read write cd and you can get shredders that will shred cds so I, okay i would do that myself personally now yes why don't floppy drives go any faster yeah why don't they when ibm who is the originator of the original big old eight inch was it eight or eight eight and a half inch uh i think it was eight inch uh diameter floppy then those were actually floppy 
They they really flopped. <laughs> well, they were they were, but yeah, they were floppy. Oh, I see what you mean. They, they were floppy. That's where the name they, came from because they were flippy floppy. They had a soft outer shell yes. in, in addition to the the, the mylar uh, donut that was inside. Correct. Uh, get a load of this. IBM was running those at the maximum speed possible oh. for the head to stay in contact with the medium. Aha. Uh-huh. If if it, it turns out that it you start to have aerodynamic effects if you go any faster than the original floppies did, and so because of the whole technology basis is a head in contact with the mylar instead of flying over. Now remember that the Bernoulli boxes had That's the heads right. flying. They they were soft. They they were soft media, but they, but they deliberately spun them fast enough so that the head would fly over the surface. And of course, all hard drives operate on that technology. But floppies have always been a head in contact with mylar technology, and you can't spin them any faster, or the heads take off and fly. And then again, even Spinner, I won't be able to save you. Although uh, probably at some point, some engineer, as you say, said, "Hmm, flying heads, interesting idea. Maybe we can use that." Well, I think what happened, oh, you mean like, and then they went into <laughs> they made, hard, you know, drives. hard drives. Yeah. Yep. Although, yep. I, when, I, when did IBM invent the 8-inch? I mean, they were doing Winchester drives probably at the same time. Eh, I don't really remember the sequence of yeah. events. Yeah. 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 We're going to uh, take a break and mention our uh, fine sponsors, audible.com. In just a second, uh, we want to remind you, we're coming back with 12 fantastic questions from you, our listeners, which Steve will answer. This show brought to you by Audible. If you want to get a free book from Security Now, just sign up for Audible at this special Security Now address, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. When you sign up, you got to be a new member of uh, for Audible. When you sign up, you'll get a, a credit toward a free book, and there are so many great books. Once again, somebody sent me a great book for Security Now, same guy, and I cannot, I cannot find it. He, he's Twittering it to me. That's the problem. And tw- stuff on Twitter just goes by. But there's there are a lot of good security books, good books about crypto. There's books about everything, business, science, politics, history. I mean, there is a ton of wonderful stuff on audible.com. Uh, I think I re- recommended this last week. I'm not sure if I did. I, I mentioned Scott McClellan's book is on audible.com. Uh, yeah, what happened? Still is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing. I thought I was going to get flooded with uh, hate mail saying, how dare you? But uh, I guess no, you know, if you're interested in uh, politics, there's so many, so many good choices. I want to recommend one that I really uh, enjoyed that actually opened my eyes. It was uh, it's by um, Chris Matthews, the guy who does hardball. I listen to Chris every day. Yeah, I think he's one of the most astute observers of politics um, out there. He was rated actually by a magazine. I don't remember now which which publication in the UK they rated the top ten pundits, political pundits mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. and he read them off in backwards order. Uh, and they were all people, you know, I know, and I'm sure you know, Leo, because you and I are both politics junkies. Mm-hmm. He and he and and then he skipped himself because he was number two. No, Carl Rove was. <laughs> Was number one. That must have made him crazy. 
<laughs> and Chris and Chris Matthews was given the number two slot, which uh, he was very proud of. And I said, well, good. You know, I mean, I think he is good. He's, he was, he's our, really... he was our local guy. I actually interviewed him quite a bit when I did radio in San Francisco. He was, uh, I think, the Chronicle or maybe no, it was maybe the Examiner's uh, Washington bureau chief. But I always was impressed by him. His book, Hardball, is how politics is played, is really a great book. He has a new one that you might want to t- take a look at on audible.com. He reads it. It's called Life's a Campaign. But politics taught me about friendship, rivalry, reputation, and success. Uh, he talks about Bill Clinton. He talks about Hillary Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Christopher Matthews has, has interviewed them all, has talked to them all, has observed them all, and really knows his stuff. And this is a great book. If you like politics, and I think we're all kind of into politics these days, this would be a great choice for you. Uh, Chris Matthews reading his own book, Life's a Campaign. Uh, it is free for you, if you want, by going to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. But, of course, there's so many great choices. Left, right, and center, libertarian, uh, green, any any political persuasion you have, you'll find books uh, on audible.com. And, as I said, everything else, too. It is a really great resource. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now. Are you ready, Steve? I'm ready. It is time to ask you. This is from Dustin in Raleigh, North Carolina. Dustin wants, uh, he he offers a useful USB thumb drive reminder. Wait, what are we on? Oh, wait a minute. That's 11. (laughs) We'll save that. Here's Aaron. and Steve's going, what page are you on now? I went out of order. I saw one and I said, that must be it. Aaron in Union, New Jersey. He has a self-conflict resolving NAT router. Huh? Uh, Steve, I've been listening to you and Leo since Security Now 1. I like to think I'm absorbing all of this wonderful and useful information, especially since I'm taking a collegiate summer course in computer security. But in all that time, I never heard of anything quite like this. You ready? He says, I have a Verizon DSL, and in effect, I have two routers, a Linksys Gizmo, provided by the now defunct SunRocket, that was a voiceover internet provider very good one that went out of business uh, which connects to the outside in dsl and a pre-n netgear router i wanted to take the gizmo off my network since it no longer serves a purpose he's not using sunrocket anymore and it's not completely stealth unlike my netgear anyway the gizmo was set up to be the dialer into the dsl he was using the gizmo to do the pppoe so when i typed 192.161.1.1 to access the login for my netgear the router page told me that due to some conflict with Verizon, my router is now 10.0.0.1. I thought I remembered you saying that 192.168.1.1 couldn't conflict with any ISP's IP range. I was also unaware that my router could so easily change its local IP settings. So when it does DHCP magic, it now pulls from the 10. range. Are there any security implications? How is this possible? Is it common? Help me, Steve. Help me. What's <laughs> happening there? Well, I was very impressed to hear, first of all, that the Prien Netgear router would automatically recognize that that the the upstream um, the the upstream net range was conflicting with what it was going to be assigning to by default downstream. In other words, what happened was that the the first router that he's got on. His on on the internet that is the the internet facing router is this DSL router this gizmo as he calls it. Um, it was it was taking whatever ISP um, 
uh, assignment he had of IP and no doubt translating it through NAP, Network Address Translation, into the the common 192.168.1.1 network. Right. So, so apparently when the Netgear, which was connected downstream of the Gizmo router, when the Netgear saw that the WAN side was 192.168.1.1, it was smart enough to recognize that it could not use the same subnet, the same network range on its LAN side in order if it was going to properly perform network address translation because you need you need non-overlapping networks in order for the the routing in the router to understand whether the packet stays local or needs to cross into the outside world. So so anyway, I'm impressed with the Netgear. What it apparently did was when it saw that its WAN side had a private IP address, which is what 192.168.x.y are, those are private IPs that will not be ever used on the public internet because there's there's no routing information for them. There's nowhere for the packets addressed to those destinations to go. So when the Netgear inside router saw that the outside was already a, a, a public IP, I'm sorry, it was already a private IP, that 192.168.1.1, it chose 10.0.0.1, for example, as its own internal address. So I'm impressed with that. And, you know, really... I think, what, Steve, I think all routers do that. Uh, well, you, I know... Here, I'll tell you what happened. Because I've had this happen to me many times. If you don't say to the second router bridge, if you say assign IP addresses, it's going to take it from the other pool. It's going to take it from the 10 dot pool. It's, it's happened to me every single time. So what um, he's got is he's got both routers doing DHCP. Okay. You yep. see what I'm saying? So, yeah, although I've, so the I've Gizmo's doing DHCP. and Well, I've, most of my routers, when they see that they're... they're also being asked to do a DHCP, they say, oh, well, I guess I better use 10 dot. Because otherwise you will have IP address conflicts, won't you? Well, well I guess, I guess I'm, maybe I'm just older than I thought because I've, <laughs> I've run across. you No, I'm, uh, the routers that I've encountered have to be manually reconfigured into another range if their ranges overlap. For example, you might have two routers that, are, that both want to use 192.168.0.0 to 50 or 0 to 100. And so you can you you can set the second router to be dot one dot zero to a hundred. You know they, they don't have to be like move over to ten dot. They just have to be non overlapping ranges. Oh, the um, best thing to do though. Well, actually, I'm I'm curious. I'm going to give you a follow up question. Generally, what I'll do is if I have one router doing DHCP, say this Gizmo, is I I turn the put the second router into bridge mode. I say don't do DHCP. Let let guy number one do it. Then you'll never have any IP address conflicts. And then I don't know why you would have a second router for Wi-Fi. Ah, okay, yes, absolutely. That I mean, that would absolutely make sense. So yes, uh, you could use it as you you well you could either have you could either have it bridging or um, convert it into a so-called access point so that it's right. not it's not doing any NAT at all. Or it's vice just a, versa. It's, Sometimes I have routers attached to Wi-Fi routers as the front end. But yep. now here's a question: Is double DHCP as his system's doing? Both systems are doing DHCP. Is there Anything wrong with that? Is that a bad idea? No, there's nothing wrong. What, it doesn't what, slow things down or anything like that. No, it's, it, essentially, it means you know when you say double DHCP, it means that the 
interior router asks on its WAN interface to the exterior router, you know, give me an IP. And so it received 192.168.1.1, for example. And then machines on the inside, on the actual LAN, they asked the inner router for an IP. And the inner router, knowing that it could not have IP ranges conflicting, it jumped over to 10 dot, um, which, I mean, it makes sense because, okay, for, for two reasons. First of all, we do have people who are now stacking routers, as this guy was, and, and most people plug them in and just set them and forget them. So having that, that function automatic makes sense. There are also ISPs who are issuing public well they're they're issuing their subscribers private ips so you might for example not not from your router would you receive a private ip but from your isp that is on your isp's network you would have a private ip because your isp is running their own nat router and so they're natting all of their subscribers moving them to private IPs because they you know, may not have enough public IPs right. in order to give all of their customers their own individual public IP. And in that case, that would explain why routers now are smart enough because if they see that they've received a private IP that's conflicting with the range they were going to assign, they'll just jump over to a different range. So the problem would be if you had this gizmo both attached to another router and attached to another computer. And then it might assign this second computer or something in the 192 range. And then the second router might assign a different computer, not knowing that there's a computer in that range, the same number. And then you'd get a conflict. So that's sensible behavior for the router to do this automatically. Of course, if you put a third router on it, then you'd really be out of luck. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I just say put it in bridge mode. Actually, a third router would work. What would it? Well, you'd have to tell it, okay, don't use 192. Well, no, no. Um, it 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 would if you had the, We're out of private ranges, though, aren't we? Yeah, but you can ping pong back and forth. So the in oh, if you had a saying, right. third yeah. router, that could be back to one nine two. It would translate it to ten and back to one nine two. I mean, it'd be confusing, and you know, but it would all work. And overhead is not a concern. Something like that. Uh, no, these are all very fast. Okay. So, but he's certainly right. I would get rid of the, yeah, gizmo, the gizmo, yeah, and just and tell the tell the um. The interior router, if it's able to do PPPoE and connect you via DSL, then you get, apparently it's just, you know, a, a nicer router. Here's another reason people often have dual routers on there. A lot of times the cable company or the DSL company gives you a modem that has a built-in router. And you, for whatever reason, may not want to use that router. That's, I think, exactly. our setup here. We're using an 802.11n router that's attached to Comcast's modem slash router. Yep. And in that case, I think in that case, I should check. I think we're bridging. But if bridging just means don't do the NAT, just, you know, pass through. But it would be okay for us to have it be doing routing as long as we don't have set up a conflict. And as you say, you can often in the router say, no, still use 192.168. Just start at 200, 1.200 and, and then avoid conflicts that way. Or or just uh, 192.168.2.1. Or 2.1, or dot, you, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 you know, 0.1, 1.1, 2.1. Because normally these routers will only 
gnat within the lower bite. So, for example, it's like zero to fifty or zero to a hundred. Right. And so, as long as you, as long as you, you know, that's change yeah. even the second digit, then you still have something that's clearly recognizable as a as a private IP. And to answer his question, he was right. One ninety two dot one sixty eight and ten dot zero both are private. Can't conflict with anything outside of your LAN. And uh, there's no security implication to what it did. No. In fact, it's a good thing. Yes, Brian, it's go ahead. secure. Yeah. Yeah. Brian <laughs> in Raleigh, North Carolina wonders, how can all possible bit combinations, every possible bit combination, be reduced to a 32-bit, I'm 32-digit MD5 hex hash? Steve, Steve, how can that hash uniquely identify any of an infinite number of bit combinations? 16 to the 32nd equals 10 to the 38th possible combinations that a 32-hex-digit MD5 hash can represent, but a 700-megabyte file, as your average CD image, has two... Oh, do I have to read this? Two to the... (laughs) You didn't even put in commas. Two to the 587... No, let me see. 58,720,256,000... Anyway, there's a lot. It's a high number, possible combinations. Since the latter is much greater than the former, how are the collisions avoided? So what he's talking about is how these MD5 hashes, these 32-digit hashes, are used to represent the contents of a file uniquely. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. He, he's, he's seeing, for example, that somebody will, you know, maybe a, a Linux or a Unix distribution site will post ISOs, that is, um, ISO images of CDs, and they'll say that the MD5 hash is blankety blank. And so there's an MD5 hash, as he says, is 32 hex characters. The idea being that you download the file, then you perform your own local MD5 hash, and you should always get the same, the same result as they have posted on their website we would just what you know the result they got when they use the original file the advantage being that you're able to verify that that nothing has changed in the file so he says okay if there's if you got 700 megabytes of data which the hash somehow reduces to this just little 32 characters of hex how is it possible that all of those possible bit combinations in a 700 megabyte file don't have any collisions. How are collisions avoided? Well, he used the term avoided um, as opposed to prevented. Uh, so we need to get into semantics a little bit. He's Brian is absolutely right that there is no way to prevent collisions. That is to say, many, many, many different combinations of bits in that 700 megabyte file will all result in exactly the same hash so you are it is not an absolute perfect fingerprint for the file the only way you can get that is doing a byte for byte comparison of the original file however but the, yeah the ha- the ha- number <laughs> That the hash, the hash has been the hashing algorithm, the thing that makes it cryptographically secure is that it is computationally infeasible, as the crypto guys put it, to deliberately Ah, there's the key. Yes, to deliberately create a fraudulent 
700 megabyte file, which will hash down to exactly the same thing. So, so, so the, the risk would be that somebody could deliberately make, you know, some hacker could create a malicious ISO image where, and, and stick it on the website, assuming they didn't also have the ability to change the hash, and I guess they probably would, but, or, you know, or, or, or give you a, an ISO image and say, hey, this is a valid image, trust me, you can do the MD5 hash and check it against the publicly posted MD5 hash, and it'll be the same. The point is that it is not feasible to design a file which, when hashed, has any arbitrary given result. And so that's what's being protected. That's what's being prevented. So that, and given that we've got 10 to the 38 possible combinations, that is, that many different possible hashes, you know, that's 10 with 38 zeros after it. The point is that a, that that's the, the, it's statistically unlikely that any non-malicious change would go unseen. That is, it would be, there would only be one chance in 10 to the 38, essentially, that a, an, a mistaken change during download would change the bits of the ISO such that it still gave you the same resultant hash. It's possible, but 1 in 10 to the 38 makes it incredibly unlikely that that's going to happen. So it both prevents, with a high degree of reliability, a random change from going undetected, and specifically, it protects from anyone malicious designing a file that's going to be the same length, but changed in a way that gives the same hash. You just can't do it. It's just impracticable. Yep. Computationally infeasible. I like that. That's a good, that's a good phrase. I'm going to work that into conversation sometime. I don't know how exactly. Uh, Sandy Nissen in Northfield, Minnesota, worries about the PayPal browser plugin. That's the one we've been recommending that will generate for you uh, one-time use um, uh, credit card numbers, among other things. PayPal has a new web browser plugin that offers some useful services. Over the years, I've been pleased with PayPal's privacy and security and their dispute resolution, but a browser plugin? What? Given how buggy browsers are, is there any way this new tool could really be secure? I'd love to take a look, Steve, Sandy. <sighs> well, I took mine out. Oh, I rem- you're kidding. I rem- no, um, not for any security reason. I was just, it was just dunning me constantly. Yeah. Anytime I, I went like to a... I bar add-ons. I never install them. Well, it's worse than that. This yeah. thing, I mean, you, it's just a little P for PayPal, a little icon, except that anytime you go to a page that has forms, even when you're not buying stuff, if it happens to see like a, a field with name, this thing descends down from above in this little, you know, would you like me to fill this in? No, go away. I mean, I tried to disable it and turn it off and reconfigure it. It doesn't seem to obey its configuration um, settings if I even understood the way they worked. Because, And then you have to go back over to PayPal's site and say, no, I don't want this dumb thing descending from above. 
every time I visit a page that has a form where it says, oh, we can fill in your shipping address. We can fill in your billing address. No, just leave me alone. So I finally said, okay, uh, I've, I've had the plug-in experience. I don't need it anymore. I'll do, if I need to use get, get a one-time credit card from PayPal, I'll just go log into PayPal and get it there. So um, I, I sort of agree on the other hand, we've got you know password plugins, and um, so, you know, who knows that it's, if someone will come up with an exploit. It is the case that you still have to authenticate yourself every single time you use this. And if you've got the football, which for five dollars, I don't know why anybody wouldn't have one of the one of the Verisign. Um, you know, PayPal, eBay, authentication, footballs, or credit cards, you can require that that be used every time to, you know, to really prevent any sort of, of shenanigans. So, uh, you know, I sort of agree. Um, for me, it wasn't a matter of security. It was this, this thing was just too incessant. And I finally said, ah, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to get rid of this thing ra- rather than wishing that it were present. I, you know, it would be nice to have the auto generate of the credit card numbers, but I just do that on the PayPal site. Yep. The, the one thing I found, and I, you know, Amazon keeps saying, oh, your credit card, I, I made a multi-use one and uh, Amazon doesn't like it for some reason. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, you I, have two choices, as you pointed out, you have two choices. You can make a one time only, which is really the most secure. It can only be used for one purchase and then it's no good. But if there's sites like Amazon where you buy from a lot, you can make it specific to the site. But it doesn't expire. It just continues working, but except it doesn't seem to. I did have a nice experience. I remember mentioning on the podcast that I used the PayPal one-time card on a site where they were really pushing for like a subscription sort of deal. And I like there was no opportunity to turn it off. I didn't like the idea that they were going to have my credit card information because I just didn't like the way they were behaving. And I noticed that the card, whenever you get it, it shows an expiration date of the following month. Right. So it's and so you know, so even you know your 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 one time use card. Here we are in June. So if you were to get a card now, it would say that it expires in July of two thousand eight. So sure enough, I got email like a week later. Your card's saying, about to expire. <laughs> yes, we wanted to we wanted to notify you. Sorry. So you so you don't miss any of our valuable services. That, the card we have on file is about to expire. Oh, Please funny. come back and update your, your credit card information. I was thinking, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll just keep using the one-time thing. The one-time thing is great, and it is the more secure because it can only be used for one purchase. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Chris Wyatt, Phoenix AZ, got the job. He got the job. Steve and Leah recently graduated from NMSU with a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. I went on some interviews with a government contracting company. In the course of the interview, it was explained to me the particular job that I was applying for focused on security and specifically encryption. I was asked a few questions, and thanks to your podcast, I was able to explain the difference between asymmetric and symmetric encryption. The interview didn't learn it in school, but he learned it on our show. The interviewer was apparently impressed enough to give me a job. Well, today was my first day, and after recognizing what TPM is in laptops, my supervisor was impressed as well. Thanks, Leo and Steve, from a longtime listener. That's nice. I just thought that was a neat little note. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that they must have covered that. You probably took the day off in computer science class. The day yeah, a, little, a little refresher always helps. I think one of the things that you do so well is, 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 uh, is because we're focusing on just one topic often, 
you're able to really explain it thoroughly in a way that everybody can understand and sticks with you as opposed to when you're studying this stuff in school, it just goes and goes and goes and you there's a lot to remember and stuff. So I'm sure they covered it, but, but, but he remembered your discussion of it. Alan Lowell Mass was asked an interesting question. Hi, Steve. I love the show, he says. This isn't a question about a problem I'm having or anything like that. I consider myself very well-versed in networking and the Internet in general. But a friend asked me a question I had never really thought about, and, and I couldn't come up with an answer, so I present it to you. Do you think the Internet and all of its protocols like IP, TCP, and so forth that we know and love will be phased out at some point in favor of more secure protocols? One of your earlier episodes was on the social implications of Internet anonymity and the bad guys having access to the same encrypted communications the good guys have. Do you think this will ever change? Is there a way to protect digital rights and fight piracy without infringing on people's privacy? In our current model, the answer is no, but may this ever change? As long as the government doesn't seize all personal computers, we'll always have the ability to maintain our current Internet model, so a new one would have a hard time replacing the old one. It's an interesting uh, question. If you have any opinions on the matter, I'd love to hear it. So would I. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we're 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 seeing a an evolution. Certainly, the the whole IPv6 standard, which exists now and is sort of trying to you know move to the forefront, although it's not being adopted with any great speed. It, for example, does incorporate security, you know, like in, in encrypted communication security in. The base protocol, which the original TCP, IP, you know, the, the original Internet protocols did not have things like IPsec and L2TP and, well, and, and SSL running over TCP. The, the, the things we've talked about in this podcast, they the, those are all sort of optional afterthought add ons that were that were sort of grafted on afterwards. And the main protocols we use, like HTTPS, like um, POP and SMTP and I, IMAP, for example, these are non-encrypted protocols by default. There are there are people pushing for encrypted versions of those existing protocols to be used. And, and also, as I said, IPv6 incorporates really good end-to-end encrypted security in the base protocol. So if you have IPv6, although you're not you're you're able to have non-encrypted communications, part of the support for the spec means that you will also have have good strong encryption available. So it certainly is the case that over time we're we're moving in that direction, although because as 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 he as Al mentioned, you know, this the the protocols we have today are functioning and they do work. They work. Yep. There, there isn't they a don't great, work well, but they, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah, they work actually, they well do enough. Work well. I mean, in a way it's a remarkable system. You know, there is an initiative going on at Stanford called, they call it the clean slate internet initiative. And the idea is if you were to redesign the internet, if you, if knowing what you knew now, you were to set out to design the internet, what would you do differently? And it does address all of these issues. You know, in fact, uh, if you go to the website, which is cleanslate.stanford.edu, they've got articles on all this, including the future of TCP, train wreck or evolution. That's one of one of the articles. Um, and so, I, I mean, this is a really interesting question. He, he our, our listener raises the most important question, given, you know, let's say you did come up with a better, it wouldn't be too hard to come up with a better sol- solution. How do you implement it? 
Well, and for example, we've talked about all of the various extensions which have been made to to TCP, for example, over time as the world changed. Right, right. You know, I mean, the original protocols have turned out to be surprisingly robust and um and and able to have extensions added to them in in a in a forward looking backward compatible way so i mean i'm i'm impressed that this system is is running as well as it is but you know certainly it's the case that we've learned an incredible amount and and if there was only a way to turn back the clock well um, i guess what you would do i mean if you if you uh, you see it sometimes when they build a new bridge or uh, uh you keep the old bridge, you build the new bridge, and you decommission the old bridge after the new bridge is completed. You'd have to do something like that. You'd have to design, uh, and it would take d- decades, design and build a new internet structure that then you slowly replaced the old internet structure with, or maybe not so slowly. The problem is it can't be too big of a change. Look at how hard it's been to do, as you say, uh, v- uh, IP6, V6. Um, you, put it in, you put it in the routers. The ISPs can support it. You can support it maybe at home, but who's going to flip that switch? Yeah, I think it'll it'll happen in a sort of an, an incremental. It's got to be evolutionary. Yeah, for yeah. example, you know, many people are now using secure versions of POP and SMTP right. and IMAP. You know, right. they're 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 deciding they want that end to end security for, for example, email that is notoriously insecure. I mean, exactly. You know, the example you were giving earlier about about being on the cruise and having, you know, your own email um, yeah. com- conversation intercepted. You know, I mean, by default, that sort of stuff could now easily be encrypted. And it's just, it's not because of inertia. Well, it's also, uh, you know, it's the same problem Microsoft has to face. What, do you do you start from scratch and go through all the pain that involves, or do you try to overlay on top of existing protocols more security? And that's what we've been doing up to now. But at some point, it just becomes, you know, a bag hung on a bag on a, on a wire. Yeah. On a, it's a kludge. And uh, at some point, you really would like to start over. Have you? Did you ever? Programmers do this sometimes. Did you ever start over on Spinrite and say, "Let's just do it all over again," or do you always build on the existing? Oh no, I've uh, Spinrite's probably not a good example. Although when I went from version two to version three, I completely rebuilt the yeah. program. So yeah. I guess that's a good example. I mean, the, the 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 I what I wanted to do with version three just would not fit at all within the structure that I had, right. and so I just I just started from scratch. I built a whole new UI uh, engine underneath it, and and essentially rewrote it from scratch and added a whole bunch of you know really cool new technology. So yeah, from time to time, you know, and I think. Um, the the perfect paper passwords is another example. I think we're what well, we we were on version three now, um, and it kept getting more sophisticated. And I scrapped it each time and just did a you know started from scratch again. So Programmers often I, do that, or anybody does it. You'll start over. We've done that with the show where we lost a show. We did it the second time. It was better the second time because we started from scratch, right? Knowing what we <laughs> learning what we learned exactly. Paul, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Udo Penther in St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. What a beautiful place. I would love to be in St. Thomas right now. He worries about insecure bank logins. Hi, Steve. I've been a longtime listener of your show. Thoroughly enjoy it. Did I skip? I did. I skipped. I'm sorry. <laughs> you knew this. You didn't stop me. I, 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 I'll go back. Udo will come to you. Actually, let's finish Udo, then I'll go back to six. How about that? Or you could just have Dane edit this. <laughs> No, Dane's busy as it is. I don't want to add any more work. We'll do Udo. 
There's no re- compelling reason for me to do six seven as far as you can, are you concerned. Nope, nope. Uh, he says I've been a longtime listener of your show and thoroughly enjoy it. Today I do have a question. At least two of our local banks' websites provide a regular HTTP login web page rather than an HTTPS page to enter one's password and user ID. After one provides this rather critical info, the next page changes to HTTPS, secure HTTP. So is that sufficient? I've tried to access the login pages through HTTPS, but the system does not accept them. I'm rather hesitant to use this setup. I hate to join our local power company and phone company in bankruptcy. And if it needs to be HTTPS, is there some professional reference I can place on the bank management's desk in order to bring their IT departments into the 21st century? This is a question we get a lot. Yes, uh, and and it's been we've talked about this before. I've but, had this question, yeah, and and because it's important and it does come up a lot, I wanted to just sort of re revisit it again. The way the technology works is funky. It it's it's an example of of the fact that it's a consequence of the fact that web pages then the web system was originally a a read only medium that is you would surf around and you would read stuff but there was really no notion of information going in the other direction so that was grafted on to the specification in a in a strange way when you're submitting a form to a web server you're submitting form data you actually do it in the form of a query because queries is the only thing http that original protocol understood and so you you the, you ask a question that includes the data you're submitting the 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 confusion here is that because this site was not well designed by its its web the web designers the form is not on a secure page but the fact that he mentions that once you enter the critical information the next page changes to https what that means is that the the query itself that is being sent containing your data is secure because the page you get in response to that query is a secure page so what your browser does when you actually click the button to send this back it establishes a secure connection then in that secure connection goes the the confidential critical information to the server which then responds to the query as such with the the result page saying oh yay you successfully logged in welcome to the bank so so, so it, anyway, normally it's secure i don't know how to summarize it that way um i would say that that oh yes i i, I see what you mean what 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 you mean is that it's it's it would be very unlikely for the bank not to secure your login information but it but it's possible it is absolutely possible so um ie7 for example change the way they handle links and buttons such that if you float your cursor over the if you float your cursor over the button down at the bottom in the in the little tray it will show you the url you're a, that that button is going to take you to and firefox version 2 and 3 both do the same um and 
I know that Internet Explorer has an option to warn you if any form data is being submitted over a non-secure connection. Hmm. So that's something else you can do. Now, is You can unturn that off, unfortunately. Yes, you are able to turn that off. Again, it, this requires some awareness on the part of the user. It would right. certainly be possible for someone to design a web page that accepted form data that was not secure. So, I mean, again, this is a it's a it's a fault of the designers of these banks websites that they didn't put the form request data on a secure page. Although it's worth mentioning that even if they did, the button to submit it could be insecure. Mm. So your data, even though you were you were filling the form in on a secure page, it's not the page where you're filling the form data in whose security matters it's the it's the url of the of the query which is sent to the server when you click the link i mean it's, it's very it's very confusing and as i said it is a it's a kludge so and, and most banks do it this way although i noticed bank of america now has changed that um amazon has has does it right so when you go to the login page it's https Yes, because it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling. I, that's how I des- <laughs> it's how I it's how I designed my e-commerce system um, for purchasing Spinrite as well. Is I, I put you on a secure page. You can check, you know, our security c- certificate. You can, you know, you know, then that we've got good, full, one hundred twenty-eight bit industrial grade security, and and then you fill in the form and you move through the the e-commerce process. But to underscore so it, what you said, it only gives you a good feeling because it could still be insecure. Yes, because the form yes. the form button could be insecure. That's a very good point. The, the page you're filling in could be secure, but the form button submission could be insecure. Although, I mean, that would be nutso for anyone to, <laughs> to design it that way. Would it be hard to do that by accident? Uh, well, it, it could be done by accident. Yeah. So I guess that's the that's the real point. So so you should really hover your mouse over the button. Yes, and see where you're going when you click that. But, but you know, see where where you're going to go, where the information you submit is going to go. God help you if it goes to double click and bounces over to. <laughs> if, it, if you know, it goes to double click on the way to PayPal. It's like, oh goodness. Well, now you know. Now I really want to see. I'm gonna to go to Amazon. See, I don't. I, I does IE does that, but I don't know if any other browser does that. Fire, uh, Firefox does. It does. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm. I'm looking at my cursor hovering over Firefox two, and I'm seeing the the URL in the bottom of this of the of the Firefox window. So, oh, okay. And somebody mentioned when we talked about this before that there's a plugin that you right. can use that will pop up the where if you hover over a button it'll show you right like right there in a tooltip for the button what the URL is. The so Amazon puts you on an https page and their button says sign in using our secure server which is probably a good idea but again you know unless you hover your mouse over there and you see that https you don't know. Yep. There's no there, you know they could be saying that. Yep. <laughs> This is exactly what we were talking about uh, with the last question is that there are it, the web isn't designed kind of inherently to be secure. And there's lots of little loopholes like this. And I don't I wouldn't expect any end user to know about this stuff. No. Just people, and that's, you know, no. And that's the problem. And it is, it is the uninformed user, the people who are not listening to this right. podcast that fall into these traps all the time. But that's everybody. It's a yeah. small percentage that, that know this stuff. 
Now we'll go back to Aaron Feichart in Fargo, North Dakota. He wants longer passwords. Darn it. I'm an avid listener of security now, and I have a pet peeve to share with you. It's online services that try to limit the security of my account passwords. Oh, I'm with him on this one. Yep. Gone are the days when an eight-character password is sufficient to protect my personal information. While most sites are getting better, I'm a paranoid person when it comes to password length. I started signing up for online services intending to use my preferred password length of 25 characters, including spaces, that is pretty long, and was rejected. Heck, even my bank limits me to 16 characters, no spaces. Mine also. With modern one-way hashing what it is, can you think of any plausible reason why I should be limited in such a significant way? If services widened their limit, and at least allowed spaces, I could come up with a multi-word passphrase that would be easy to remember but nearly impossible to break. Why do they do this? Well, yes, this is a great point. And, you know, we were talking about hashes um, in in responding to an earlier question um, about, you know, remember about the MD5 hash on 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 a CD. Right. The the nice thing about a hash is that it can take in data of any length and it always returns a fixed size result. That is, it's always 16, for example, in the case of MD5. It's those it's those 32 hex characters. Even if you give it in, you know, like a three character password, each each character goes into that cryptographic algorithm and it every every character sort of changes it that you add changes the the hashes output as a under the influence of that character and a whole bunch of internal state that the hash algorithm is maintaining. So what this means is that that servers could be designed so that they I mean MD5 is is fine um, although it's regard, regarded now as maybe not the best hash choice to use in the future but what must be why, happening why not? the, the um, well just because it's you know longer hashes are better and there've been okay. some there've been some problems found with it but okay. I mean you know, but but for this sort of application it's fine what what the only reason I can imagine that a server would say we're limiting you to this size is they're actually storing they've 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 set aside right, right. in in your record in your logon record at the server they've set aside x number of bytes well the reason that's troubling is that says they're storing the password and not the hash and the reason that's troublesome is that means that if someone got a hold of their database, they would end up with all of their customers' names and passwords. The beautiful side of storing instead, storing the hash, is, okay, it's fixed length, so it's got the advantage of being able to have a fixed amount of data set aside, just like a fixed length password does. But by not storing the the, the user's password Instead of only storing the hash, it's not something that is reversible. That is to say, if somebody – I mean, you don't want anyone to get a hold of your, your, your login database, that's a bad thing. But if they did and if they weren't able to modify it, they would still never be able to figure out what the password was even though they had the hash. And that's one of the cool things about hashing and, and, and storing. So Aaron is absolutely right. There's – there's no good reason that anyone is limiting a, the length of a password. Is there anything in uh, uh, Windows Server or whatever that makes spaces problematic? 
No, 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 there isn't. It's just, you know, some algorithm, you know, just decided they don't want to allow certain wild characters, spaces, you know, maybe underscores or hyphens or who knows what. And, and you know, a perfect example of a modern day hash based password is the WPA key. The WPA can be pretty much anything you want. The longer, the better. And it always hashes it down into a fixed size result. So there, there's an example. And hopefully this is the, you know, the kind of best security practice that other designers will adopt in the future. Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, in fact, that's, you know, Unix is, always, well, not always, I shouldn't say that, but Unix, any secure version of Unix uses MD5 hashes for its password tables. Yep. Uh, for, that, for that very reason. And I, you know, that eliminates any issue with, you know, weird characters or whatever. Just hash it. It's always the same length. I, you know, it puzzles me. All right. So you're right. They should be doing that. Aaron, go out and spread the word. Complain. <laughs> Paul Thomas in your, my, my bank does it too. I hate it. In fact, you know, what really gripes me is that uh, banks really encourage you to use four character pins for ATMs and stuff like that, which is really bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly there, it's it's the problem of they want you to memorize it. They don't want you to write it down. And they don't want people to say, I can't remember what my 12-character pin is. So they make, they, make them, they make them short, which makes them insecure. But it's, you know, that's a classic example of security versus convenience yeah. trade-off. Yeah. Paul Thomas in York, the UK, York, England, wonders about deep packet inspection, traffic shaping, and security. Stephen Leo, great show. My son Gareth thinks I'm a geek as your podcast. Is that, sorry, my son Hank thinks I'm a geek as your podcast is generally playing in the car when I pick him up from school. Hi, Gareth. <laughs> he always asks me, do you understand what they're talking about? No, I reply, but they do. And I will shortly. I like it. <laughs> to my question, which I apologize for if it's been asked and discussed before. I've just changed Internet service providers and I've come against come up against traffic shaping. My previous ISP didn't do it. Would it be possible for you to explain how this technology works and whether there are any security issues regarding its use? It does appear to be the way ISPs are going. I read today that Comcast in the States has been hit with three new class action lawsuits due to the company's traffic shaping practices. Thanks, Paul and Gareth. Well, that's uh, a really good question. A hot topic right now. It is. Yeah. And essentially, the the idea is to traffic shape or not if you if an isp did not do any kind of traffic shaping uh, as has traditionally and historically been the case they're selling you a basically or renting to you one of their ips which you have full access to they you know, they're just saying, you pay us so much a month, we're going to give you so much bandwidth on this connection, and you're, and we're going to give you an IP that allows you to transact traffic in any way that you want. So things began to change a few years ago. Actually, unfortunately, Microsoft was the original driving force in this change oh, really? because because Windows was having so many constant problems with security that ISPs began protecting us from Windows by blocking specific ports. So, for example, I know that my I'm using um, uh, Comcast here. Um, I'm sorry, Community Cablevision, Cablevision. Mm -hmm. um, and 
if I have a non-firewalled machine and I use Shields Up, for example, to to do a port scan of that, I'll see I'll see many ports closed, but some stealthed. For example, one thirty-five through one thirty-nine is a range that'll be stealthed. That's not me doing that. That's my cable provider that has just blocked off those ports because that's the old Windows file sharing port range that was su- that was such a problem. Good. That's and, an appropriate thing to do. Well, you might say yes, you might say no. I mean, again, that's an ISP filtering it's Big Brother. Filtering my traffic. Right. What if I what if okay, what that means is that I could not deliberately expose my Windows file sharing, right. even if I had adequate security, if right. I if I used a secure username and password, if I trusted Microsoft <clears throat> not to have any vulnerabilities that that weren't known, um, say that I wanted to make some drives available that I could have access to through Windows file sharing. Well, I cannot do it if my ISP is going to deliberately filter some port ranges that they've decided unilaterally. Um, are not good for me. Right. So it sort of began there, and of course, it's escalated ever since. Traffic shaping means that the ISP actually looks at okay that the ISP has a policy. Hopefully, there it's a public policy. The problem is this started happening in secret. This was, and in fact, it's not the only thing that's been happening in secret. Next week, we're going to finally talk about the form system, the so-called form webwise technology, which has really got people upset because ISPs that have adopted this are changing the pages people download um, from foreign servers. That's next week's topic. But, oh, interesting. Huh. But, but what's happening here is that the ISP is looking at the traffic and making a, a, a proactive unilateral decision about whether they want you to be doing what you are doing or not. So essentially, for example, in, in the case of, of, of using BitTorrent and, and peer-to-peer clients, um, what the ISP is doing is they're seeing that your behavior is outside of, of hopefully their publicly stated policy, and they're injecting packets of their own into your connection in order to alter the behavior of your computer and or remote computers. And they're just doing it because they've decided that they want to. This is what Comcast is is getting in trouble for because they're deliberately disconnecting BitTorrent peers saying, oh, we didn't want that after all on your behalf. Yes. Saying, oh, we we weren't really looking for it. And then, of course, all of a sudden your BitTorrent download stops working. Regardless of whether it's legitimate or, or not, they just decided they're using something called Sandvine. Yes, and 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 really, the problem is that people people felt that they were buying an unfiltered, unshaped, ah, unshaped, <laughs> unshaped connection. Right. Now, yes, so either the ISP is going to have to be very clear right. that that you know they reserve the right to. To play cop essentially on the connection and and filter whatever they say they choose to, or maybe people will offer that you know ISPs will offer a premium connection which is unshaped, um, and then you know you'll be able to get a cheaper one that is shaped. I, it's not clear how this is going to evolve, but it is 
you know, certainly very controversial. I, you know, I'm of mixed mind. I mean, on the one hand, I want to get what I paid for in terms of bandwidth. And, and, and what the ISP say is, well, if we don't pack it shape, if we don't do deep packet inspection, if we don't run Sandvine, you're not because there are going to be some hogs out there who are going to use up all the bandwidth and make it not available to you. Um, so on the one hand, I think that, that maybe that is a legitimate business uh, decision, but I think they do need to be clear that they're doing it. And as you say, maybe they would offer a different um, tier of service, but then you'd have that problem big time because uh, these bandwidth hogs would be up on the higher tier where you were paying a lot of money. Well, and you know, remember that we did a, a whole episode on bandwidth congestion right. on this on this notion of how does the internet and how do our protocols and how do routers handle congestion? What we really need is a more mature right. implementation of existing technology so that for example people who just want to do email or browse the web would have priority over their ISPs routers and and bandwidth whereas somebody who wanted to to be doing BitTorrent huge mega you know gigabytes of downloads they'd still be able to do that but but their 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 so-called class of service would be such that that they get to use any available bandwidth at a lower priority than the people who are just doing email and right. surfing the web right. and then, of course then you have the advantage that web surfing is all snappy and the ISP actually gets more value because they're going to have you know all their customers are going to be happy they're not going to be doing traffic shaping they're they're going to be doing traffic prioritizing but that's what gets back to the question that we had earlier, which is the Internet infrastructure. Doesn't it need to be rewritten to really do this efficiently and effectively? Yes. You know, these kinds of problems are not things that that have that originally had good answers and they, they weren't recognizing they weren't recognized as as things that were going to be problems. Yeah. Question nine, Travis in Indianapolis, he's out uh, driving around looking for his iPod touch. <laughs> Where did it go? Well, we'll find out. Oh, this is a good one. Steve, I had contemplated this concept a few weeks ago while listening to the podcast, also reflecting upon full drive encryptions and so forth. Then just a couple of days ago, I've been able to test this theory myself. I hope it gets me results. Someone broke into my car in my driveway. In my driveway. Many others, too, I guess. And took my GPS device. They love those, by the way. They're like candy to car thieves. As well as my iPod Touch. I was devastated about the loss of the Touch. Not so much about the GPS. Because that's how I listen to your podcast and uh, others two hours a day in my car to and from work. Man, I know how that feels. If you don't have that and you got that commute, you boy, it's like, oh, I got to listen to the radio. When I filed the police report right away that morning, I told the officer that I'd hacked my iPod touch. And if the thief tried to check my mail, it would show up in the logs of the mail server I run myself. When I got to work, indeed, I found the logs that uh, while I was driving to work, they were accessing my email. Bingo. I got the IP address of where those curious thieves were reading my email. This guy's smart. I quickly changed the passwords, and for about another hour, I continued to try to check email, but was now getting failures. Oh, they continued to try to check the email, but they were getting failures. Of course, my right. hacker instinct was in full first force. Unfortunately, they don't have any ports or remote administration open where they are. Because <laughs> he, he attacked and the address. And this is where I told you that I removed his last name from his posting. He attacked because, their address. I don't blame him, but... No, I mean, and sad to say, it's illegal for him to, you know, try yeah. to penetrate their system, even though they're they're creepy thieves. It's called vigilante justice. I did verify via Aaron, A-R-I-N, that it was a Comcast address who services my era, area. He did a who is. And it was based in the area, too. I've passed this information along to the officer. He's submitted it for a subpoena 
to find out who the present owners of that Comcast IP address are. I hope he can use this to help get back my stuff and everyone else ripped off. You know, if it's a big enough case, that's pretty good evidence they've got there. Yeah. I'm also doing some war driving, looking for the MAC address. Oh, because he has the MAC address of his iPod Touch. He's looking for the MAC address as it's certainly broadcasting unless they've turned it off. Seeing as how they were <laughs> Can you see this poor guy driving around looking, you know, trying to find trying to, where is it, you know, checking all the checking all the MAC addresses of the you know <laughs> that he picks up in the air. Oh my god, there's my MAC address. I mean I mean he still doesn't t- it doesn't tell him, you know, where where it is it's exactly. just in the neighborhood now. Yeah, oh, it's really a couple hundred feet. Uh, seeing as how they were dumb enough to check my email, he figures it's probably still on. But here's the question. Had I made it so that the thief couldn't access my computer to communicate back to the world at all, I wouldn't have been able to get the IP address where it was located. Now, this is the only way I could get my stolen electronics back. So in this case, if it were a laptop or something, then the whole drive encryption, BIOS passwords, any other of those effective security measures that would limit their access, eh, I'd have nothing to go on. So I guess in some cases, letting them have access to your device can actually increase your security or at least the chances of getting that device back. I love the podcast. Hope this gives you a different view on security that perhaps you hadn't thought about. Wow, that's it. Well, there are Lojack devices for, uh, for laptops that do this exact thing. Yes, there are. There are a number of companies that sell a tracking technology. They install themselves um, down essentially sort of a, a pre-boot technology. Right. That um, that uh, in the old days, they used the phone, the modem in the machine in order to to dial out and and identify you. Um, and now, of course, they use the Internet and, and IP addresses in order to to do that. So there are there is that kind of technology. But, you know, it was sort of an inter- I loved I loved his whole story about about, uh, you know, seeing whether the the iPod Touch was going to be having email checked, and if so, then grabbing the IP and giving it back to law enforcement so they could track these guys down. It sounds like it's probably going to be successful because I do know from my own experience that you know if law enforcement gives an ISP a subpoena saying we need to know who has this IP address, uh, I mean the ISP is absolutely happy to do so. They only want the protection of being compelled to do that by receiving a subpoena from the court, so that you know, so that they can't be brought in trouble, uh, gotten in trouble from their from their customer who said, "Hey, you know, um, I'm not happy that you told the police where to find me." <laughs> there's a uh, there's a product for the Macintosh. It's very clever. Um, it, it it looks it, for it knows what the IP addresses are for Apple stores. So hoping that the thief goes into an Apple store, it will immediately log into the uh, open internet there and take a picture of the thief using the camera built into the laptop and send it back to you and say, he's in the Apple store right now, which is, I think, a great idea. There have been some cases of, of laptops being recovered with these kinds of technologies. There actually is a Lojack for uh, laptops. Same kind of same idea. I like it. But, I, but it doesn't enhance your security. It only enhances the, your, your chances of getting the computer back. Yep. Uh, Don in Burbank, California, has a book recommendation. Hi, Steve. Just finished the Code book. Oh, yeah, that great Simon Singh book. Well, I love that. You guys mentioned it and talked about it before. This is a must-read for Security Now listeners. It starts off a bit slow, but it builds up very carefully, and it really makes, just like our show, and it really makes you know, sure you know cryptography when you're done. When I got out of it was, oh, so that's what Steve's talking about. Thanks for the great podcast. I always learn something new. The Code book. Simon Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Number, you have nothing to say, I take it. Nope. <laughs> I just wanted to pass on his recommendation because I certainly it's a good, agree. It's, yeah, it's, it's a great book. book. Yeah. 
And then I have Code, Code Breakers too, which we mentioned before by David Kahn, K-A-H-N, which is the thick book that actually uh, was a little out of date because I think it ended in the 60s, but it covers Enigma and everything. And then uh, he updated that just a few years ago, maybe up to the 90s anyway. You know where I got the, the bibliography for those two books was from Cryptonomicon. Ah, right. Neil Stevenson's wonderful novel about encryption, which is great to read. Uh, long. Long. But yep. I think I, it's my favorite book of his. I, I really it. enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. And in the back, he, you know, he, he did a lot of research on crypto. In fact, he comes up with his own crypto scheme using a deck of cards in there, uh, which I think Bruce Schneier said, yeah, that's pretty good. I think Bruce helped him do it. Uh, anyway, he has got a long bibliography in the back of that that includes those two books, among others. Uh, Dustin in Raleigh, North Carolina. Finally, we get to question 11. He says he offers a useful USB thumb drive reminder. Steve, I just had a security now moment. I'm attending a work-provided course this week. It's a PowerPoint-driven course. So the instructor wanted to share his slides with the students. Now, on the second day of the course, the instructor passed around his USB key that contained the education slides. <laughs> when exactly does the red light go off for you, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious. <laughs> uh, listening to security now prepared me for situations like this. I know it's a, not a good idea to plug an unknown USB key into your computer. I went ahead and held down the shift key when I plugged it in to prevent anything from auto running. Good man. Luckily, I did because it was a U3 device, which I can't stand. Either way, it pays to be safe when plugging in unknown USB keys. I know the instructor wouldn't try to do something malicious, but if he wanted to, he could infect all the work laptops in the room. By the way, so could anybody else in the room. I was just going to say, if you're passing it around, baby, who knows, you know, about the machine that it was plugged into before yours. Not the instructor I'm worried about. Just wanted to share this real-world application of security. Now, know-how. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Was it enough to hold down the shift key, Steve? Uh, it's really better to disable the the um, the feature compl- uh, you know entirely. So you know that is that is um, optionally done on Windows. Unfortunately, because Microsoft's bias is still to just you know make it all work by default, right. it's something that users have to go in and manually do to turn off the auto run. Of, of the USB. And there are some technologies that makes make it less easy to do that. There are there are USB devices that look like a CD-ROM, um, not just like a regular, um, uh, you know, static drive. And so those can be a little more tricky. Oh, that's kind of what U3 does. It, uh, it mounts a CD and, and auto runs that. Yep. Um, yeah, so it wouldn't just have to be the professor. The next guy he hands it to could, and it wouldn't be hard, could quickly drag something onto the usb key while he's copying the file off or or leo i tell you i mean it's remember in the old days floppies were the viral the the, the viral medium of choice yes. you know because flop you know it was so-called sneaker net because you you stick a floppy in and then you right. copy some data to it and you go somewhere else i mean floppies are the way viruses existed before the internet because you know viruses predated the internet and the only way a virus could live would be if some way it could move from machine to machine and so it was floppies that were virus carriers back then. Well, similarly, a USB dongle or thumb drive is, I mean, a virus looks at that and thinks, hey, there's a way I can escape from this machine. So you can well imagine viruses that are sitting there waiting for a USB drive to appear 
and jump over to it as soon as it gets logged on to Windows. So it wouldn't even be, uh, you know, somebody else malicious in the class. Their machine could be infected with a USB propagating virus that will put itself onto any drive that comes along. That's a very good point. So, yeah, it could be uh, that's easy to have happen. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't have to be maliciousness in your class. Just be could could be incompetence. So in a, just a bit, John in Ottawa is going to bring us the looming threat observation of the week. But before we do that, I want to mention our sponsor, Astaro Corporation. Astaro is just uh, one of the best companies out there. They've now been with security now for, what, over over two years, I think. I'm going to have to look at that. Um, we, we You know, Audible's been with, with us for a year. And Audible's saying this makes it one of the longest lasting relationships in podcast history. And I have to say, I think if, if that's the case, then Astaro is the longest lasting relationship in podcast advertising. They've been with us since almost the beginning and what a great company they are. Astaro realizes the relationship is good because they make security devices. The Astaro Security Gateway, a great hardware device that combines the best of breed in both commercial and open source applications for your security. Now you look at it and of course the first thing you say is, well, you know, it's it's got a firewall in it. Yes. It's got intrusion detection in it, yes. But also, this guy has a lot of convenience stuff in there. It has SSL uh, VPN, so it's very easy to log in and completely secure VPN router. Uh, it also has uh, things like PGP built in, which is really cool. It allows your end users to do encryption and uh, message signing, message decryption completely transparently. They don't even have to know they're doing it. With OpenPGP or SMIME, they, they've got complete security. It's really a unified approach. It's got three antiviruses, two for the web, uh, one for your hard drive. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it's always up to date. Once you configure it, you know, you don't have to monitor it. It grows with your enterprise. You can actually connect up to 10 ASGs, Astaro Security Gateways, together in without any additional load balancing to kind of, as you grow, that would handle, I don't know how many thousands of seats. I mean, these things, these are great. M- many, many companies use the Astaro Security Gateway. I encourage you to check them out at AST. ARO.com. Or if you are uh, would like to try a Staro out in your enterprise, call 877 the number 4 ASTARO and you can get a unit in your office absolutely free. Of course they have non-commercial licenses as well that are absolutely free for those of you who want to run this on your own system. In fact, there's even there's a great VMware appliance with a Staro running it. And now they have that new Staro web gateway that gives you URL filtering and malware detection and complete control bandwidth management. Just a really nice set of applications. I really like them. ASTARO.com. If you're a home user, go to astaro.com slash security now, and you can take a look at download it and try it. And if you're a business user, call for a demo, free demo in your office. They'll come in. They'll set up a unit. You can try it for a while. And I think you'll see what a great boon this is to your security. It's it's wonderful. AS877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O got one right behind me but i don't want to unplug it because <laughs> it's protecting us right now we thank astaro for their supportive security now are you ready for question 12 the looming threat the looming threat observation of the week john in ottawa says Stephen leo my item of interest is perhaps a bit more vague than your usual items my concern arrives from my belief that we are at the cusp of seeing a real proliferation of home use servers emerging onto the internet. What does he mean? What is he talking about? 
<laughs> Steve doesn't like it. He feels it looming over him. In particular, I see NAS storage boxes, which I use. I have two of them. Uh, migrating into server territory and being targeted for sale increasingly to retail consumers. But are consumers ready? Here's my point. Two, twofold. One. These next-generation units are becoming increasingly full-featured and economical. To illustrate my point, I quote a manufacturer's website, Build up your dynamic website. This is an ad. WebStation runs Apache Web Server that allows you to publish websites with only a few steps. With pre-installed PHP and MySQL, you are free to install popular blog or bulletin board programs on your DS-107. No advanced IT knowledge is required to build up your community. So I guess I didn't realize they're selling these as web server boxes. Uh, and this unit's $260, including hard drive. So that's point number one. That is a little scary, isn't it? Point number two, because these units seem like an external drive, they're all too easy not to take seriously. Since most people will look to this primarily as a critical data backup, it'll be tempting for them to have the unit central to their LAN. Bad news if the unit's also accessible to the internet. In other words, if it's a web server and your NAS and your backup, and mm. it's got PHP and MySQL running. Oh, that is terrible. Oh, the hackers are just drooling over this. <laughs> Which, uh, let's see. To me, this formula adds up to a real potential for trouble. I hope the producers of these products will begin taking steps to inform their customers of security concerns. Perhaps each product should contain a link to the website of a well-known security researcher. <laughs> Maybe they just put all of our podcasts on the. <laughs> I'd be interested in hearing your take on this matter. Thanks for the great show and keep up the good work, John. Wow, I didn't even know they were doing this. Yeah, doesn't that sound like a bad idea? Well, tell us why. Oh, uh, well, I mean, okay, we've talked extensively about how about what a big problem um, commercial websites have with with um, security vulnerabilities, which are you know, more or less constantly being found right. on the on the internet, and and so here we have. You know, PHP and MySQL, and they're talking about uh, free-to-install popular blog or bulletin board programs. So many of those are exploitable with, with cross-site scripting problems. I mean, basically, we're, we're, we're talking about a huge expansion of, of some of the most um, problematic, um, you know, Web 2.0 facilities, which are going to be uh, set up and installed by people who have no appreciation or understanding of, of the security implications. Like, oh, look, I can run my own web server and my own bulletin board, you know, and, and, and stick it up and, and have it be public. Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, we're looking at a serious problem in the future. So, yeah, I mean, not only do you open up uh, holes into your, uh, you know, the, that, that server by running services on it, but because it's attached to your network, because you're using it as a backup device, let's say, you may have valuable data on that hard drive. It may provide a portal into your LAN. Yes, exactly. Is it? I didn't. I didn't realize they were selling these kinds of things. Wow. Yep. But, you know, we, we've seen people do this all the time, but it takes some more sophistication. For instance, they'll, you know, people will call me and say, "Well, I want to run a, run a web server. I've DMZ'd my computer so that it can serve the internet." It's like, great. Just I wouldn't. Well, I'd be or, 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 or or Leo. I mean, it, exactly like what happened when Windows was first stuck on the internet. Right. It was like first you had Windows, and then people were like, "Oh, I want to put my computer on the internet." Uh, not to you know, and no one happens to notice that I've got my C and my D and my E drives all shared because I was never plugged on the internet before. I didn't bother with username and password. And so we've got open drives 
available through Windows file sharing. I mean, that was where all this began and the reason I created Shields Up. So it's like, I mean, we're in the same sort of situation with, with that sort of a next generation of naive user who installs this, who then makes this available publicly on the net with a whole bunch of not necessarily secure server-side applications running. Wow. Ooh. Now that's not we're not talking Windows Home Server or anything like that. This is a whole other class of devices now. Well, this is a Unix based machine. Right. It, it's got Apache running right, with, right, yeah. with PHP and MySQL and and they're saying, Hey, feel free to install blogs and, and BBS programs. I'm sure that's very tempting. Somebody wants to want a website, they say, Oh well, I got enough bandwidth on my uh, on my uh, internet access now. I could just run it out of my office. <gasps> it's it's gonna happen. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Steve, we've gone through 12 questions, 12 great answers, had a great conversation, but I'm afraid our time is up. Um, but we'll be back next week. We will. And you, know, you said you're going to talk next week. About the whole form WebWise technology. There's a very disturbing new trend, which is ISPs are actually modifying the pages their customers download. So when I go to a website and look at the page, an ISP has tacked on their own JavaScript, which is being used to monitor me and track me and profile me. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea. Wow. All right. That'll be interesting. We'll, tune, we'll, we'll do that next Thursday and uh, every Thursday. Steve's here for security. Now, if you want to get a 16 kilobit version of the show for the bandwidth impaired or to share with your friends, or you want transcripts, show notes, it's all available on Steve's site, grc.com. Of course, that's where you'll also find uh, all of Steve's great security programs, Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, The Fun Wismo. All of those are free. There's only one program he charges for in his whole life, but it's the one you should buy, and that's called Spinrite, because it is the best, the one, the only, the one they all copy, Disk Maintenance Utility. Our drive recovery utility. It's just, you know, if you use hard drives, you need to spin right. GRC.com. Steve, we'll see you next week on Security Now. Talk to you then, Leo. Security Now.